Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday morning. I'm trying an experiment again to do this at the urging of my teen. I'm trying to do this on a video at the same time as I do the audio. Uh, We'll see how it works. I'm just not good at this. But my son came here to set it up for me. So here we go. Uh, this week, the um, also uh, three of the podcasts are being sponsored by a good friend of the podcast, which is uh, Abe Gluck, the Gluck Plum, Plumbing in Lakewood. Uh, he's doing th- sponsoring three this week in honor of the memory of his parents, which is a very fine, very classy thing to do. That's Chaim Eliezer Shalom, Reb Toby Gedalia, that's the father, and Chava Fega, Bas Ushmaya Shlita Glick. So, um, I asked him if he scratched out, his parents are from America, but his grandparents are from uh, Hungary, from Kleinverdan. So, uh, I actually have somebody in my show, her grandfather, I think, or whatever, was a Kleinverdan robe. This is Kishvardau in, in Hungary. These are the small, small communities in eastern Hungary, which until the Holocaust were overwhelmingly Orthodox. It's just interesting. And the Kishvardau, you know, Kishvardau is a small castle, you know, Kleinverdau, like in German. And uh, this is, uh, you know, the once upon a time was the good old days until Hitler. And then all of a sudden it wasn't the good old days. And all the friends that they thought the Hungarians around them were uh, friendly turned out not to be that way as I think we're all aware. Uh, so it's a tribute to their memory, uh, which is the, with the, the yard size this week. And uh, Nisham Shavalia, let me thank uh, the Gluck Palming uh, for this. So that means this week it's going to be, he's sponsoring the biography, the uh, Parsha, and the Haftorah. So Nisham Shavalia. Especially in the beginning of El, especially in the beginning of El. So anything that's uh, marbits is good. Uh, uh, now, I'll tell you the truth. Last week I was in um, Teaneck, and I ran there of a while, and he said he wanted... He was, we had an interesting conversation, and one of the things he's interested in Maharil, and, uh, which I'll eventually do. They told me Shouts and Chubas and things like that in general. And for some reason, I turned my mind to the Trumas Adeshin because he's a more or less a contemporary of the Mari Welb, who I always was kind of hesitant to do. But I don't know, I just had the bug to do it today. And so I'm going to devote today's talk to one of the most interesting figures in Jewish history you never heard about. Meaning, it's a rare case. I just find the Truman's edition fascinating. Uh, it's a rare case of a rabbi from old. Do we actually know some things about this personal side of his life to some degree? To some degree. So let's get down to it. We're talking about somebody who was a big rabbi in the 1400, 15th century, like 1390, 1460. Even the dates are nice. And uh, here we're talking about 
um, Austria. Well, it's kind of strange. I don't know how to run this on the video as well. Otherwise, I would show a map. But um, I don't just don't know how to do it. It used to be that we're, we're talking about the late 13 and basically the 1400s. Uh, I know that doesn't mean much to a lot of people. But hopefully, after my talks, some of it will. And talked about before with Marie Weil. Um, Ashkenaz Jews used to be called the Holy Roman Empire. Germany was a lot bigger than Germany is today. Um, the southern part of Germany extended into what we call today Austria. And even beyond that, into the area below Austria, which when I was a kid used to be called Yugoslavia, it used to be called part of the Austrian Empire, it says Slovenia. <laughs> I think Donald Trump's wife was from there. And uh, it's a strange area of Europe, what can I tell you? And there were strong Jewish communities that once upon a time, these would be Ashkenazi Jews that are always moving away to the periphery, try to find business. <laughs> and especially in the late 13, 1400s, very big anti-Semitism. More than usual. In the middle of the 1300s was that Black Death, you know, the Great Plague, which killed a lot of Jews and killed the Veltagayim. The Jews were blamed for it, caused a lot of anti-Semitism. But besides that, there was just a very strong period of the Roman Catholic anti-Semitism and things like that. And so it was a tough time to be Jewish. And basically, you never knew what tomorrow could bring. Over and over again, you had a situation we had a uh, prosperous Jewish community, everything's going good, and then boom, some pogrom or some other junk broke out, and everybody got killed or kicked out or something like that. Therefore, if you're Jewish and you're living at that time, you're naturally neurotic. Get it? It's normal to be neurotic. It's abnormal not to be neurotic, because life is like that. That's the world in which our hero lived. He's from Israeline. Um... Iserline is, uh, let me put it this way. When I was younger in Yeshiva, we used to run across this guy when you went to go for your day, because he's Maharoi. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Did you ever study after you get on to Buster Bacal, Tarubas, and all that business? They always look at Maharoi. Who is this person? And to Marina Rav Iserline. Uh, that's who we're talking about today. Israel Iserline, Ben Pesachio. Iserline is nothing but old German for Iser. But line is like, when you say, have you heard Fräulein? You're saying a Frau is a German woman. Fräulein is a, a, a diminutive in a nice way. So in Eastern Europe, they uh, corrupted it just, oh, like Moshele. So in, in, in Germany, our ancestors long ago, when they said Moshele, they would say Moscheline, Moscheline, right? And Rachelein. It just means like nice. So his wife was Schindel. Right? Schindel. Uh But it's, her name was Schindlein. Schindlein. These are uh, nice ways that people used to talk once upon a time. But because he became such a big girl, it was very famous. Rabbi Iserlein. Right? So it's actually a little bit funny because it's a diminutive of a girl ador. But actually, that's a nice thing. You understand? Uh, it's like saying Rabbi Chaskol. You know? Why don't you call the guy by his real name? No, it's endearment. You understand? The public liked him. They called him by endearment. Now, um, in our case, I forget exactly how the um, biographers put it, 
And I know they've discovered a lot on this person. That's not going to be of interest to you guys. <laughs> you used to say he's born here, but then later the research found he's born here. That doesn't mean anything to you. But the thing to have in mind is to think about the Jewish communities in southern Germany and Austria, near Vienna and south of Vienna. Our hero is going to spend most of his life in a place called Wiener Neustadt, which is New Vienna, which is about 35, 40 miles south of Vienna. And in addition to that, there's another place called Marburg, which is about 100 miles, I don't know, 150 miles south of that place, of Wiener Neustadt. There's no mean thing to you if I were to tell you this is today called Maribor, and if you go there, somebody last year sent me an uh, email, he said, I, land, I lead uh, tours, Beis Yaakov tours, went to Maribor, you can see the old shul. Uh, it's true. You know, a lot of these places in that part of Europe, the Jews are dead, but the communities have preserved the synagogues and stuff like that. By the way, same thing in Kishvarda. The Jews are dead, but the, the synagogue is preserved as a, you know, because it's the nicest building in town. This is a world of the Jews and the, and the Germans and the Slavs. Get it? This is where the Germanic conquest stuck its nose into Slavic areas. And that's why these Slavic areas, Croatia, Slovenia, what's the other one called? Slovenia, Carinthia, Styria. I mean, these don't mean, don't, don't mean anything to you unless you live in that particular little wrinkle of Europe. But once upon a time, there were Jewish communities there. And in the period we're talking about, which is the 1400s, 1300s, there were Hashiba communities. And there were big Makomos at Torah, mainly because they had big Rabbanim over there. So Jewish history is replete with little fly trap, no place, good for nothing, junk little towns, which became famous in Jewish history because some rabbi came there and made a big community or a yeshiva or something like that. After all, just off the top of my head, what the heck is Lubavitch? Some forkakta little nothing in uh, white Russia, you know what I mean? The, the town itself. I saw the ones that interview with the mayor now, today. The guy wasn't wearing clothes. He just had, like, shorts on him. Something like that. It's poverty beyond belief. The Lubavitch Rebbe made it Lubavitch. The Gare Rebbe made Gare something. You understand? Uh, Volozhin is a garnished. A gar I was there. It's garnished. Volozhin became famous in Jewish because of Volozhin Yeshiva. So similarly, if we're talking about the career of our hero, Yisrael Israelan ben Pesachia, he made the place where he lived to Chashev. And themselves are themselves not so chasha. Uh, okay, now, here's somebody, as I said before, 1390-1460. So he lived all through the 1400s. Austria was a wild and crazy place. There you have the Habsburg, the Dukes, before they became the emperors. And they're all about money and greed. And when he was um, 30 years old, so let's put it this way. As you might imagine, we're dealing with someone from uh, a Chashev rabbinic family. I think his grandfather was at Gaza Sheri, something like that, if that means anything to you. So, you know, that type, from the elite. Over and over again, we come across these famous rabbis who are from the elite's families. Because a regular shoemaker, nine out of ten times, not going to become a gadol because it's not in the cards. You don't have the time and, and the family tradition of scholarship. It's possible. You know, it happens once in a while, but not really. Usually... They're members of the elite families who had long traditions of scholarship. The men and the women. You married the type of woman who's, who, who works to raise the children like that. 
you know, there's enough money in there somehow or other. Um, you're already a member of the fraternity by just being a member of this family. The other rabbis relate to you in this way. Like it or not, it was an elitist world. Okay? What can I tell you? And our hero is mamish from that, Hebra. And so if you want to know what an elitist world would mean, and by the time you hit the year 1400, this would mean people who who had, who's, who traced themselves back to Mom uh, Rottenberg, the Rush, and their students. These were the big names at that time. You understand? The, the Mordechai, you know, the specialists in these histories, which I'm not going to do with you now. I mean, I could, but believe me, I'm not exaggerating when I say the Truman's edition is worthy of six hours. That is not an exaggeration at all. So I'm going to have to confine my remarks very rigidly to do this within a normal time framework. Although I'm a big fan of his, and I've always find it endlessly fascinating. So, you know, he learned with this uncle and that uncle, you know, that kind of thing. He was a guttle. Uh, when he's in his... Tw- so by 1410, he's 20 years old. During that decade, the Jews have it good. He's learning of a storm. And then comes 1421 and 1422, when a Holocaust hits. It's called the Vienna Zero, which, without going into the details, most of the Jews of Vienna rounded up, burned alive. The women were kidnapped, killed, tortured. A lot of Jews committed mass suicide. Hell of a business. The story is... I'll do something on another podcast about it. That, that's a whole partial by itself. Why the Duke did that. He was angry at his wife. Suffice it to say, it was all a cost. But what did our ancestors do when faced with a Holocaust back in the 15th century? They were not rare. Now, it wasn't 6 million, but by the standards of that time, it was like 6 million. You know what I mean? In other words, if you're living in that part of Germany and the whole Vienna gets wiped out, the Jewish community... And the women were put in Shibuya situation, terrible stuff, burned alive. So, uh, you know, you have no choice but to uh, recover the best you can. The current idea of PTSD, whatever they call it, the post-traumatic syndrome, and the depression, the Holocaust survivor syndrome, I'm sure you had something like that at that time. But counterbalancing it was the fact that life must go on. There's no um, state of Israel. There are no Jewish welfare, you know, institutions. And you still had to put yourself back up by your strip, by your bootstraps. You had no choice. And so, your family was wiped out. But you're the survivor. You go fight your. That's what happened to our hero. His mother, I think his father was dead, but his mother, his uncles, they all burned alive. And what's interesting to me, Al Kiddushin. What's interesting to me always is, because I find him fascinating as a person. Uh, the Truman's edition. Uh, he, you know, didn't get crushed by it, but he didn't hide from it. And his students say, this is interesting. On Tisha B'Av afternoon, after the kinos, he would gather the students together and it would tell over about the deaths of his parents and the and the Holocaust of 1422. Again, they did so it was a religious kind of thing. On the other hand, you know, this is how he dealt with his own personal Holocaust memories, which I think is very normal, because you don't talk about it all the time, but you don't hide from it and pretend it didn't happen either. One day a year, on Tisha B'Av, which is actually the time to do it, that's when he went and put himself into it. 
After that, he eventually was in Marburg, as I said before. I was once offered to go there for a tour. Who the heck wants to go to Slovenia just to see five minutes here? Now, the show is there, and the show was built in the 1200s. And so you can see where our hero was a rabbi for X number of years. You can see where it was the synagogue and even the yeshiva building and all the rest of it. That fortified situation. And eventually moved to Vienna Neustadt. So uh, here, as in classic form, uh, he spent the rest of his life uh the Rabbi Kehillah, the Ab Basin. That's number one. And number two, in the old famous Ab Basin style, he attracted his own personal yeshiva of many guys from all over Europe. So it became a hot item. And if you were Talmud of Trimus Adeshin, that's like today being, I don't know, Talmud most prestigious business. Yisrael uh, Israeline. Uh, his students emerged as being very devoted to him. She so see, he had a Moshech personality. He had a personality that, the people, that you know, his students admired. And he lived a crystal life. Now, I'll tell you what I mean when I say that. Um, but before I do that, so here's somebody who lived, you know, from the 1420s and 1460s. First in A and then in B. I, I mean, like I said before, you don't know where Marburg is, which is a Marburg. And you don't know where Wiener Neustadt is. But there are cities already, let's say, in the Austro-Slovenia area. And he built it up into something. Now, this was the time, as I said before, when the Ashkenaz Jews had been hit over the head by a two-by-four. You had all these uh, pogroms. You had these um, persecutions. They were continuing... Every once in a while, a Catholic preacher would come in. What should I say? What, who am I thinking of? Who's that guy? Uh, uh, you know, Sharpton, Al Sharpton. They had Al Sharpton type guys show up. And to be perfectly honest, Al Sharpton is not as bad as these guys were. <laughs> they would always make speeches. And by the time it's over, kill all the Jews. You know, sometimes they're criticizing for this. Sometimes for money lending. Sometimes for blood libel. Sometime for host desecration, they stabbed the wafer, and the wafer being Jesus' body started bleeding. All these kind of businesses. And by the time it's over, Lo Roizek, Roizek, Kavanos Lahazek, Vidarek Lahazek. The Jews get killed out. So it was a tough time. By the way, there is a story, I forget where it is. I mean, it's in the Truman Suggestion, or in the Lekha Yosha, as you'll see. Some preacher came in, like, like a Al Sharpton type. And start carrying going against the Jews, and God hates them, and the Jews are this and the other. And the Truman's edition himself, when he says, Oh, really? I say you're a liar. And I guess what? Let's take a test. You say you're, you're telling the truth about Jews, I say you're a liar, you're a damn liar. Now let's walk both of us on hot coals with bare feet. Let's see what happens. You're such a Christian, you believe you're right, and I'm such a terrible person, so I should get burned up and you should get through, you know, like uh, Abraham through the fiery furnace. And the preacher, the Catholic guy said, no, no, thank you. <laughs> right? So no, they exposed him as a phony. That's the type of guy he was. They said, I'll walk with you right now through the fire. Meaning, Thomas Nobjian Plishtim. He was willing to take that mobster down just to save the Jewish community. So he was, because they both get burned. Um, so he's an interesting person. Now, as a Rav, what's interesting is like this. Uh, as a rabbi, he became famous for Allah Lamaisa. Uh, first of all, he had many students, and a lot of them became rabbis themselves. But totally separate from that, the German Jewry was in a terrible state after all these 
um, pogroms, the Black Death, the plagues, the medical, the anti-Semitic. And one of the things that happened was that in all the plagues and pogroms of the 1300s, a lot of Jews got killed and you didn't have any Talmudic Chacham running around anymore. And so when you don't have Talmudic Chacham running around anymore, you still have rabbis because communities need people to run the show. And so what I'm trying to say is you have a very bad quality of people who are officially Rabbanim. It's the best you can do. We've had this from time to time in America. I won't go into detail. And so the bottom line is the rabbi is more or less an Amaretz. The basin is more or less Amaretzim, more or less. They're the best you could get. And so in that time, there were like a few Moshe Feinsteins running around across Germany, two or three, like the Maril, the Mariwell, and our hero. And these are the ones that everybody had to turn to actually know something. One of his students, who later on writes a book called Eka Yoshar, says, he said, I learned five years by Truman Sadesh, by my rabbi. Then I went and learned in the Rhineland, in other yeshivas. They asked me a million questions about him. Halacha, did he really say this? And really pass in this way and that way? I said, yeah. Why? I said, I don't know. I'm not the biggest Tamachacham. Later on, I went back. I went back to um, to what do you call to uh, 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 my rabbi. Mm-hmm. I went back to Austria, and and I and I brought back a list of uh, one second. I went back to um, to my rabbi and I, with a list of questions, and the and the and the question was like this: Why did you paskin this in Hilchas Shabbos? Why did you paskin that way in Hilchas Kashrus? Why did you paskin this way in Hilchas this, that, and the other? And each time he said to me like this, why? I passed it? It's a buffet of Shagamara. This is a Tosvis. Right? This is a Marmottenberg. This is buffet of the Rush. In other words, he said, I saw what big Amorasuni were back there. They simply didn't know. Now, it's not to knock them. It's knocking them, of course. Not to knock them. This was the situation in the early 1400s. In the 1400s, Bechlal, in many places in Germany. The three heroes, the Maril, and Rabbi Yaakawal and Trimus Adeshin were on to labor to try to build things back up. The only possible way you can do so, and that is to create yeshivas and try to turn out uh, Talmudim, some of whom will be <coughs> of the level that they'll be serious scholars and they'll be able to paschalis in a real way in the future. You see, this is the story of German Jewry, Ashkenaz Jewry, in the 15th century. That's what it is. And I think of all of them, our hero had the biggest yeshiva, and probably most students. He's not the only one, but I would say he was the main one. And he was viewed this way around the world. So people knew at that time, you know, you want a big Ashkenazi rabbi who actually knows something, even if you're living in Sephardi land, even if you're living in Italy. Uh, by the way, he was a little bit of a time in Italy. It's interesting business. When the pogroms came to the Holocaust in 1422, if I remember correctly, he had to flee. Where did he go? He goes south into Italy. I told you more than once, the Italian Jews, rove of them, were not Italian Jews. It's exactly what I'm talking about now. That there were killings going on in Germany, and as a result, a bunch of Ashkenazi, Yiddish-speaking Jews like him, ran away to Italy, and in his case, he didn't stay there, he went back. In a lot of cases, he had stayed there. So you're talking about northern Italy, the communities, Verona, Padua, you know, places like that, where Chashavah communities of Italian Jewry, they're actually Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazi Jews. 
And if anything, you know, their style affected the Italian Jewish learning. I don't want to get you too detailed over here. The Marik, who I spoke about before, actually used to learn one way. Then when he met a Talmud of Trimazadeshin, who, who was a Dayan in uh, Italy, he flipped to the Trimazadeshin's way of learning because our hero is going to be pretty famous for what we call Savari Yeshara. Straight, normal, you know, uh, um, argumentation. But how do I know? How do I know? Um, this is where literary legacies come into play. Because our hero realized in the course of his career what the situation like is, of course, in Germany. And in, that was the largest community. I'm talking about Germany from top to bottom. It's a huge area. The Holy Roman Empire. And he realized there's a lot of unclarity out there. And so he undertook to publish in his lifetime a collection of halakhic questions, which he called the Trumas Edition. You know, from the from the Chumash, the Trumas Edition, you take away the, the ashes, right? The Heiri Mesadeshin, Asher Tuchalo, Isha Solal, Mizbech, Mizbech. You say it every morning, I assume, right? Maybe you say the Karbonas. Um, so, Deshin is Shinnon Dal, that's 354. That's how many days there are in the Hebrew year. And so, it gives you the impression every day you do one child. Believe you me, you could do a lot worse than that. I'm a big fan of the Trumas Edition. And, um, as you'll see. And if I ever, I was talking to Rabbi Wall, I went to his house in Teaneck, if it ever comes up that I do another podcast, because he was urging me to do one just on Shalos and Shubas, you know, from a historical point of view, which is an idea I'm thinking about, maybe I can find a sponsor, I don't know, um, I would do a lot from Truman's edition, at least at the beginning, because his question is always extremely fascinating. The the point I'm getting at is, he published a Sefer, which he edited. Now, this is unusual. And uh, it's got one child per day, 354. And they don't have, you know, um, it's not, and how should I put this? It's written in a little bit different style, a better style than the regular Shalos and Shubas. The regular Shalos and Shubas were literally the guy's um, letters. Yeah, Rashi, uh, Rajba, people like that. People wrote him letters, and he wrote back. And the normal style in Shalos and Shibas is Chapla. If you're familiar at all, for example, with Agris Moshe, what's the most maddening part of the Agris Moshe? You don't know where anything the heck is. Why? <laughs> because the style of Moshe Feinstein, and, and everybody is, you wrote me a question about Hilcha Shabbos, but in the second or third or fourth paragraph, there's a completely different question about a get, or about a lady who went nuts, or about a, a you know, a, a, a kosher's question, or homosexuality, you know, with the remote, you don't know. So unless you have a uh, index or something like that, nowadays internet, you can fix that. I mean, everybody knows this. So, it's not enough to know, you know, that this is a question of Shabbos, so I'll look it up in uh, Orchaim. It's either got to be Orchaim 1, Orchaim 2, Orchaim 3, Orchaim 4. Not necessarily. 
you can have an Ur, a, a Shabbos question that Ramosha can throw in the end of something in Ebenezer. That is the style, because in the real world, let's say I was a rabbi, and let's say I was writing a question Moshe finds I'm just making it up, obviously. And let's say I was living in 1970. And I'm a rabbi in, uh, I don't know, Schenectady, wherever, it doesn't matter, Seattle. And I have in my shul three problems. One, I have a getting problem. Another one, I have a uh, need a problem. And the third one, I don't know, you have a shechita problem. And so here I am, and I don't know what the answer is. So I'm writing a, a formal Shiloh through a motion of Feinstein in New York. And let's say he's nice enough to write me back. So I get an answer with all these different questions. Now, when he publishes it in a safer, he's going to decide, or his editors decide. I mean, Ramosha, when he was alive and well, he did his own editing, I think. So he said, we're going to call this a get. We'll put this under getting. Because the main question was about to get. But at the end, there's also other stuff. And so, unless you're just skilled at using the indices and things like that, they don't even know it's there. Okay? You're not going to know it's there. This is the normal way. Because what I just described is real life. Me, myself, and I, today, I could have some Shiloh or a set of Shilohs. And let's say I was writing, I don't know who's around today. You know, some big uh, guy here in Israel. I'll write three separate questions because I have three separate questions. If that guy, this big guttle, decides to put it in some safer he's going to publish, he might put it here, might put it here, might appear. Um, it's fine if you have these apparatuses and things like that. But in the Middle Ages, there were no books. Everything was just copied out. And so, unless somebody's a real Talmud Chacham, has gone through Shas and a lot of postgame and things like that, you're not going to be able to find anything in there. So out of a sense of um, public welfare, our hero, he took the trouble to edit clearly and nicely the 354 questions. And each one is kind of short in the sense that it only deals with one problem. So maybe in real life, he got five childs from somebody. But by the time he puts it in his book, the question about getting is going to go into the section about getting. Totally separate from that, the question about kashras is going to go into the section about kashras. And totally separate from that, the question about Shabbos or Erevin is going to go in that section. Uh, so in other words, he did a very good job of editing, which is kind of unknown in Jewish history. If you ask me who's famous for editing in the rabbinic world in the Middle Ages, I can only think of the Rambam and the Trimus Adeshin. It's pretty sad, <laughs> right? And the Rambam and the Trimus Adeshin. Now, um, because of this, People in later centuries, like the Shach, the Taz, said, it's a Dover Yudua that the Truman Zedeshin has made up. <clears throat> no, he didn't actually get these Shilas. You can look in the Shach, in Choshu uh, Mishra, I think, the Taz, and it became a, a well-known legend. It's also in the Chidon, the Shema Gedolon. The Truman Zedeshin is a made-up thing, is, is artificial. In other words, he's not really got that Shiloh. He just wanted to discuss this matter. And so he wrote it in the way as if somebody sent him the Shiloh. It's actually not true at all. And modern scholars, I would say starting around 1890, I'm talking about from people. You know, when it is, but Ian, those who care about this, um, this is, I'm just sharing with this you because it's a little bit interesting. And if you will read about Truman's edition, you'll often read the false legend that's like made up stuff. And well, I won't skip you with all the details as Professor Dinari wrote a whole the dissertation 
on this as part of his book. It's a very good book. I had in front of me, I have some books here about the 15th century. Yeah, here it is. Chachmei uh, Ashkenaz, here it is. Chachmei Ashkenaz, Bishil Yimei Abinayim. And he has a whole chapter on, the, you know, going in Bracha Bichachachana, comparing the manuscripts and the different editions. Uh, and not only him, Freiman and other people talked about it before Berliner. And, uh, and it's not true. And I can tell anyway. Anybody who reads the Truman Sedition, you can tell these are real questions. Maybe they're artfully edited in a nice way to obviate, to get rid of the problem of the Igris Moshe I said before, that everything is hop-plop all over the place. But the questions really happen. And the reason I mention this is because he was a post-Hegador. He got questioned from everybody. And he chose, you know, to, to, to put him in this format. Now, I don't know what basis he decided these, because I can guarantee you, a guy like him had thousands of shots. I'm serious. I'm not exaggerating. You know, the true edition was, I'm sure every day letters came from who knows where, because he had that kind of authority. He obviously made a selection, because we only have 354 out of several thousand that tells you something. In addition to that, there's another 267 called Psakim where there it's more like you see the person he's writing to. But even these two put together are only a small chalik of his actual output. But because, in my opinion, he took the trouble to actually edit this, it became classics in rabbinic literature. And everybody knows the Truman's edition is heavy stuff. And all the great achronim, starting with the Marshal and the others, they say, oh, it's a, and the Sephardim also. Oh, it's a Truman's edition? That counts. And anybody slightly familiar, even slightly familiar, with the Shulchan Aruch knows the Yosef Kara uses him, and the Ramah uses him all the time. Right? That's the Maharoi. Right? Marina Rabisar line. So he's everywhere. Okay? So his influence was enormous because he took the trouble to edit well. That means he left out a lot of stuff, but the stuff he had was like Solus Nikia. Now, in the Trimus Adesh and in his writings, he came across as this huge posek, but that's not his only identity. Even if that was his only identity, that would be enough. As I said before, if somebody wanted to do an essay, a podcast, or anything like this, on interesting and famous uh, Charles and Shubas, historically grounded, uh, you can just, you, the Trimus Adesh will keep you busy for a year. I'm not exaggerating. And he's they're never very long, but they're pithy. And he was Ashkenaz posting in the 1400s. So notice, first of all, you go by the Gemara, but also, obviously, you go by the Ashkenazi Gedolim. So to him, the Rush, oh my goodness, the Rush, much more than the Rambam, he's always into the Rush. And uh, there goes Maimon, you know, Mordechai, those kind of things. Or it's a Ruh. This is when Ashkenazi was a living tradition of the German variety. Uh, but he doesn't simply go like them. You know, he's always very swary And you never know where he's going to go. That's why I always like about the Trimus edition. You never know where he's going to go. Sometimes he's machmed, sometimes he's mekel. Always with tremendous uh, common sense. And also a great sense of piety. I mean, in a good way. Great sense of piety in a good way. So the Trimus edition is replete with all kind of interesting uh, questions. Uh, in addition to that, 
He was a Rosh Hashiva. Now, he's a Rosh Hashiva in the old school, the Avvesan type. And what do I mean by that? These guys, Marm Rottenberg was like that. I'll use modern terminology. They lived in the dorm room. I mean, it's not exactly who it was, but this is what it would boil down to if I use modern terminology. They lived with their whole family in the dorm room. In the dorm. And their life was exposed constantly to the public. And even the most intimate, it's, it's a shocking, even the most intimate details was a, a public display. And uh, I can only conclude, first of all, the guy was a loose goose. He had no pro no issues of gaiva whatsoever, which is true. You know, uh, this is the old German. I mean, usually they care about titles. He was called up to the Torah. Yisrael Memsachia. Yamotor Yisrael Memsachia. Not Marina Rav, not Rosh Hashiva, not Hago, or anything like that. Just Yamotor Yisrael Memsachia. That's one thing. Second of all, if you read his writings, he always says, I know you insulted me, and if I wanted to, I could bust you. Uh... But I'm going to let it go because it's the right thing. You think I'm kidding? Uh, where did I put it? It's in. He's got these things over here. He said, I know you said bad things about me, and I could get you back, but Hanelon, Vainamolvin, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't know where it is. I have, to, I have to take time to flip it around. He's great. He's great. Um... Now, the reason I say this is because, um, aside from his very, very interesting Shilohs, and I get all different types, and I'll read you a few in a minute, you'll see what I mean. Just the interesting types. Aside from the regular Dalachalke Shulchanar type stuff. Uh, after he died, I think it was, around that time, one of his students, I wouldn't say the smartest of his students, but guy was a Talmud, as I mentioned before, uh, Josef Estreicher, Josef of Austria, uh, put together for his fans uh, a book called Leket Yosher. So if you want to think about the Truman's edition, if this is a subject that interests you, if it doesn't, do what you want. If it's a subject that interests you, and I think it's very interesting, you have three books, A, B, and C. Truman's edition, Pesachim of which is usually always published in the Truman's edition, and then Leket Yosher. Okay? Now, Legiosha is from the student. That guy followed him around like Rav Kahana in the Gemara. Remember Kahana Puk? What are you washing? I mean, he he was washing them. The students are washing them 24-7. I mean, even the intimate marital life is unbelievable. So obviously he had no issues with this. This is Torah Vilamadah And he said, I want to tell me to learn everything and whatever. And he was held in such high esteem. Now... That's why when you read the Lekha Yosher, you get all these wonderful, um, uh, 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 wonderful things. Okay? Um, he says, and he says, I wrote these things down when I was there. Uh, it, 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 the hero worship is extraordinary because he watches them from the morning when he gets up and goes to the bathroom. Uh, but also, you wouldn't know this from the Truman's edition. He was a Magad Shir. He had a Shir. This is the old days of the 1400s, in which you had the Rosh Hashiva, the Rav, the Abbas, and gave like three Shirs a day, I think. Or 
over the course of the week, several days, he gave three shirim a day. Uh, one's a uh, bekiah shir, one's a ian shir, like sugiz, and one's a pilpul shir, right? Near a falpo. Uh, in which, and we talked about this in the past. This is when you do Rashi versus Tosa, Tosa and Rashi. How come Rashi didn't know what Tosa was saying? He must have really, Tosa knew what Rashi was saying. He must have really, you you know, you tear it apart to the little bits. Although, he says you don't make a bricha satoro on the pilpul. <laughs> that's that's in the uh, Lekit Yosha. Uh, the reason I mention it is because he has a wonderful story. I consider this a wonderful story. Pa'amachas babukar lovash chaluko shaloka darko v'avach apni milachurts you know, I could just see it. He woke up in the he went in the morning to give a shear. His head was t- totally fatrocked. He wasn't thinking about anything. He put on his jacket backwards, right? He walked into the shear. He started talking. He see everybody smir- smirking, you know. And then he realized that his jacket was on backwards. They had to low show shopper, you know, had to take it off. That's a real Rashiva from old, you know, like you hear about in the stories. He was totally out of it, you see? Because for that morning, he's concentrating on the shir. But that's nothing. Listen to this. The guy walks him waking up in the morning and going to the bathroom. The Rashiva. He watches the whole ceremony. Beshavach al smaller gimel pamim, three times. Wait a minute, let me get. Beshach kishiyot beis akise, rochas yado beshavach al yado yamino gimel pamim, benosan beged al yad yamino. After he washes three times the right, then he with the takes a beged to hold you know the cup. Benoto al klib yamino beshavach al smaller gimel pamim, v'yakakach not al matmayim al shtei yado, umoshin yachid mix them together, v'achar. In other words, he even washed when he held the cup he washed with, with the beggar, and then when, when, at what point he takes it off. And yet he put the water over his eyes, you know, as, as they say. At that point, he blew his nose. <laughs> See, he was such a, held in such veneration. Every little nakuda that he did, there were benoto mat my biyoto benoso bepif, and they would go like this and swish around with his mouth. Okay, blafami noso makli atopif, and sometimes he didn't do it with his hand into his mouth. He poured from the kli into his mouth. But this over, umisham kmitzo, umesim kmitzo, hayemin bepif letzad smolo. And he would put his ring finger, the kamisa, on the right hand, in his mouth. So he washed his, he, if he, I would use modern terminology, he brushed his teeth with his hand. I mean, we're talking the 15th century. Look, look what he's writing over here. And he would uh, brush his teeth with his finger that way. Knows why with the right ring finger, you put it on the left hand side of your mouth. He says a kabbalistic reason. You heard from a famous godol. There's a kabbalistic reason. That's how you should do it. 
And then he washed his ears. <laughs> he put some water in his hands. And he would stick his fingers to clean out his ears. And I always noticed he wasn't Machbed Dafka to put the ring finger, sometimes put the pinky. But the daughter of a famous doctor in the town told me, not true. He always washed his ears with his ring finger. Look at the unbelievable detail over here. And only then did he make Nathil Siddhaim. And um, here's another one. He used it as a toothpick after he ate cheese, you know, because he cleaned the cheese. A um, feather of a bird. I'm not saying this is <laughs> recommended by the medical association, but this is the 15th century. Why? He told me once, they didn't want to use something metal because it could hurt the teeth. Again, we're talking like levels of, you know, like what you and I would say, like this is nobody's business, right? I remember he was big into dreams and he there was another gutter of Dabashvainis and he said I had a dream about you and it was something bad and therefore we should both fast. We should both fast. The dream was right? we went to the ba- they went to the bathhouse on Friday. And I saw you got into a fight with an, in the dream with another guy in the bathhouse. Uh, I guess the question was, they're both fighting, or who should get the cup which you pour water in the sauna or whatever. And the fight ended in such a situation that a guy threw the, the cup at you and hit you in the eye and ruined your vision. All this is a dream. And therefore, you know, and, and he gets more and more dreams and so on and such and, 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 and so forth, right? And he was mocking this. And here's the thing about Purim when they do the word of Shalchmanas. Usually he would always say thank you, but when he gets to Shalchman, he don't say thank you. Mandaknit on Purim. You don't say thank you on Purim. And so on and so on and such and such. When I say it's a drop of bucket, it's not even a drop in the bucket. There's a thousand of these. Maybe two or three thousand of these little things, maybe more, in the Lekki Osher. And he himself said it was only incomplete. Recently they republished it, but to tell you the truth, I, I think only one, the blue volume, like the Machin Yushalayan, I have it somewhere, I'm just not going to bother to do it. The classic one, which is just fine, is the Golden Oldie from Professor Fryman, right? Lekki Osher over here, right? Uh, which always comes together. With the Noah Kitson Yosef and the other thing, if you're if you're into this sort of thing, and on the last page, see a highlight. Last page, it's one. This is just wonderful. He said, "Chorani Shemart." Now the guy who wrote this was a Talmud Chacham, but he was no, you know, he was a Class B or C Talmud Chacham. Zechorani Shemarti Lagon. I asked him once. Show him Sachia. Um. <laughs> this is just wonderful. What do you need the Mashiach for? You're sitting and learning your whole life. Like the Ramah say, you want Mashiach? So you can sit and, learn. sit and learn your whole life. You're holding by big Ruchnias. You know, you're in Makobal already. In, in the month of El, he writes. In Lekhi Yishar. 
since we're in Rosh Chodesh today, I think this is all fascinating. So, first of all, he locked himself in a room for an hour, it says, and study Kabbalah, he wouldn't let anybody else in. So Kabbalah, he learned during Elul. That's number one. Number two, he down for the Ahmed, because he had a very good voice. These are all chakras, the whole month of Elul. Number three, he loved to spend an hour, an hour, on Baruch Shama. Baruch Shama, Baruch Baruch he would sing it in ecstasy an hour. So I want to tell you something right now. If you saw, if you were in his yeshiva or his community, you saw him do it like every hour, that's probably better than, than a Muslim shemuz. <laughs> right? They spend an hour in Baruch Shammar. But anyway, so a guy like you, what do you need Mashiach time? I mean, you're already holding there. And he said, big piously, hastily, <laughs> he said, I just want to live this new Mashiach even 30 minutes, and then I'm ready to die. And the guy writes this, Lucky says, I kicked myself. I didn't ask him, what does he mean by that? Right? So it's a wonderful safety, like Yosha. Besides, as many halachic chubas and all the rest of it. But you get these kind of insights into the personal life of the guy. And all the rest of it, they don't get anywhere. And you see, it's um, it's a real hero worship in 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 the best sense of the word. Like Rabbi Khan anymore. Like I said before, I'm not going to go on a podcast into the intimate marital stuff. But he's got it is X-rated, you know. It's unbelievable what they have, and these swarms of people sound like this. The Truman's audition with the Truman's audition. He was a big deal, and everything he did was Kodesh Kadashim. And that's the that's the um. Roshim, he left in a generation. This you don't find usually. We have these records by others. I'm not saying the others were not like that. But the Truman's Edition, we have a, tr- a very strong memory uh, factor that you see reflected in the literature that his students were, were nuts over him. And uh, obviously, he was just not just a good old dog, but he was an, an attractive personality. You know what I'm saying? Attractive personality. He himself was very from, they would call him a chassid. He had a lot of personal uh, chumras, but he didn't tell someone else to do it. That's the old way, right? You can do it. You don't tell someone else to do it. Nor did he tell his wife to do it. So it, 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 That's what they write over here. So, uh, I don't know. As I said before, he's always a very remarkable a personality. In the Truman's edition, you have endless fascinating um, questions. The 190s, always very interesting uh, from the history perspective. Right, from the history perspective. Uh, as I said before, just a very brief um, uh, example. You know, uh, there's a famous case. Um, you know, I just did an article they published in the RJJ Journal, but I wrote it like 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, whatever. They didn't take it that time. Now they did it and they, they re-edited it. So I think they left this out. Otherwise, I would tell you to look in there. Because I remember putting in stuff from the Trimmers Edition. But I think they edited it out now. Um, and it's very interesting because um, he has, first of all, he lived in hard times. So questions about Yehard Valyavar were questions. Correct? There were cases where Jews, individual and communities, found themselves in Yehard Valyavar situations. Or not. 
So, um, can you protect, can you dress like a guy to save your life? Um, can you bow down? This is the interesting part. I'll read you the translation. It's, a, it's, it's easier. This is a, a priest or a nobleman who wears a cross. So here you are in Austria in the 1400s. You have to bow down to the king. You have to bow down to the duke. But these guys are Christians, so they're wearing big crosses and all the rest of it. Is, is that considered Mishtachal Avodazara? Is it Shesi Ve'erev? Is it a cross? Is that Avodazara? Is a Jew permitted to raise his hat to him or bow down in respect? And, of course, he says naturally, if you can somehow avoid it, but often you can't avoid it. And he says, when I was a kid in Vienna, there was a big dignitary of the church, there was a big bishop or whatever, who was a friend of the Jews. What's shot a friend of the Jews? Um, he would cover the cross when he met a Jew at the Belton. So basically, the guy was a nice guy. And so let's say, for example, let's say, for example, he was wearing, um, his shirt had a big cross on it. When he would see a rabbi or something coming, he put a coat over it, right, a cloak, so the rabbi would be able to bow to him in respect without bowing to the cross. He was a nice guy, okay? But you can't always count on that. That was unusual, okay? Um, and uh, and he quotes Rabbi Yitzhak Oppenheim, who says you can bow down because you're bowing down not to the cross but to the person. Uh, I'm just trying to show you that these are real-life questions, okay? Uh, can a guy pretend to be a Christian in 197 by wearing Gentile garbs where he says you can? That's the article I was writing you know, can you uh, listen, listen to the Mishnah Can as long as you don't say you're a Christian, can you look like you're one in order to avoid being killed or beaten up? Okay. Um, then you have the case of the apostate Jew, Jew converted, which a lot of, and then this guy wants to come back, and you know they used to have all these harsh ceremonies of re-entry into Judaism. I don't know if you know about that. And the Trimazeshna says, "Don't do it." The guy, the guy gets so turned off and go back to Christian. Now you got to go psychologically. You see, the guy had, if he made the decision once he switched to the other side to come back to Jewish, and he knows how hard it is to be Jewish, meaning he's subject to persecution, all the rest of it. Let's go easy on him, um, which is very, very, you know, which is very interesting. And um, you know, when do you commit Martin? Uh, what, what, you know, he has a famous question, which is very often discussed. In a situation where the din is Yavar Val Yaharg. Suppose I want to do Yaharg Val Yavar. Which is a Makhluk is the Rambam and the uh, Antosis, I think many people are familiar with. And the Rambam says that in a situation where it's not one of the big three, for example, um, let's say a guy says, for whatever, uh, for economic reasons, eat this ham sandwich or I'll kill you, so you can eat the ham sandwich. What if the Jew, say, uh, Jew says, no, I want to die? The Rambam says that's an Avera, Tosis says it's a Mitzvah. And so that's one of the questions that he deals with. Many similar sorts of things. I'm just trying to say that whereas a lot of the Trimus edition obviously is um, straightforward halacha stuff, a lot of it is, is historically very uh, interesting. And to read any one of them is just a fascinating exercise. It's a fascinating exercise. And he comes across a person who made just a tremendous Rosham, as they say before, on his uh, generation. The um, I myself... And by the way, in halacha, I mean, now's not the time to go into this. Shumazeshin is a major player in halacha. He revolutionized the ribbis business. I don't know if you know that. Tatariskas. Before him, it was one way. And after him, it's another way. 
the um, the way they have the heteriscus now is like a joke, meaning there's no risk being taken uh, by the guy lending the money. By the time they structure and restructure it all, and as far as I'm aware, that starts with him. And he says, I know it looks like a joke and all the rest of it, but we worked it out. Is halachically, um, you know, uh, acceptable. And in these times, you know, it's, it, it's necessary. Right? I remember he said, I know it looks funny, but it doesn't matter. They can do it. And he had the authority to push it through. So if you're into a ribbis or something like that type of guy, I mean, Tumas is a, of great interest. But in every area of halacha, every area of halacha. When I was young, they used to have the old Tumas Adeshin. And uh, I got it when I was young. Especially I found out that, I don't know exactly how, but we're, I'm kind of related to him. There's this lady in Ohio who made a family tree of my mother's thing and worked back to the Trumas Adesh and others. Um, wasn't able to follow it up, but but she did the homework. Um, and then, of course, they came out with the, uh, the cottage industry. You know, about 30 years ago, is that what it is? Uh... Yeah, in 1991, 30 years ago, exactly. The regular trimmerization with the footnotes. This is all you really need, right? Because this it gives you the footnotes and all that stuff. You know what I mean? If it's brought down in the Ramah or, you know, one of those type of things, or if there's some famous, I don't know, the Uda or something like that that talks about it. For some reason, in recent times, this is the one I love. It's a, the, <laughs> I call it a pocket size. It's not exactly pocket size, but for work of this type, and the print was so nice. And I've just become very fond of this. Once in a while, I'll just open it to read something in Trimmer's edition. Uh, it's not easy, his stuff, but nevertheless, it's always interesting, you know? And uh, this has the Trimmer's edition plus the Sucker oven. And then recently, not long ago, they came out with like a deluxe scholarly edition, two volumes over here. Um, Machon, Chachma, Shlomo, I don't know who that is. And they have the footnotes de la Bomba. So I bought them all because if I'm interested in Trimas Edition, this one is where they did like heavy-duty research, uh, which is great because uh, it's a mind loaxo. Uh, Trimas Edition, I've never seen it boring, you know. And uh, you can't say it about every safe, really good. Not everybody's a genius for everything. If I was a super genius, I would find everything interesting. But... Um, Truman's edition is always very interesting. Um, and you see that he's a perfect example of those who are ancestors who say like this, listen, a Holocaust happened, get over it. I don't mean get over it, forget it, but life has to move on. And we have to simply rebuild. This was like the Pontificia world after the Second World War. People like that. You have no choice. We live in times when people talk about a Holocaust and this and that. That's true. And if anything, the younger generation is like a forgetting it, so that's not good either. But at the end of the day, you have to have like a, a constructive plan. And we all know the only thing that has worked before is, you know, yeshivas and things like that. And Shuma's addition, to my mind, is an outstanding example of this phenomenon. Within a few years after he died in 1460, Jews were expelled from that area, and the same junk happened as happened all over the, the, the throughout the Middle Ages. But once his book was out, and his book was one of the first Hebrew books published, which was in 1519. 
by before they printed the Gemara, Bromberg, before he printed the Gemara, he printed the Trumas edition, which is really interesting. It shows you it was a hot item, and people wanted copies of it, uh, which doesn't surprise me, because I said before, it is well edited, and you don't find usually, until the 20th century, 19th, 20th century, um, or no to be hooded, you know, I shouldn't say 19th, you, know, you don't find too often people take great efforts to properly edit the Shalos and Chubas. That's what makes the no to be hooded well, and the others, the editing is, is, is a lot. Uh, anyway, I see the time is up, and I don't want to overdo it. So with that, uh, I wish you a, a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.